shepherding our hearts and praise team. Eric and Sonia, thank you for just ministering to us. And what a blessing to see you praise and uh, minister to us together. Um, And uh, church family, as you can see, we are moving to our, or we have moved, and we're on that train to to mask optional. And we praise the Lord for that. Um, Later this morning, I believe after our service for a few minutes, Ted will bring everybody up to speed, those who want to stay and hear how we got to the place that we did and what our plans are for the future. I also want to give you a warm, warm... um, maybe temporary farewell from the Morales family and uh, a warm word of thanks from uh, Vanna Vivi and uh, Ricardo. I just was blessed for the past few weeks on a weekly basis just to speak with them and to pray together with Ricardo. And he consistently prays for us, you know, and it's an amazing thing. They're there sort of trying to clear out storage containers in 100 degree heat out in Castaic. And yet there's just a heart of gratitude and thanks and encouragement and love specifically for you all especially as they get ready to go to Columbia. So please be keeping them in prayer and please know uh, directly from them their great love and gratitude to the Lord for each one of you. Well, one of the great gifts as we think about moving and as I think about moving and as the Morales family gets ready to move and it's brought back memories even as I've talked to Ricardo about my times of moving to different places and moving from Canada to to Los Angeles. One of the great gifts that was given to me when I first moved to California was a beat up old surfboard. And uh, a brother at the church I was attending had invited me to go surfing with him and to learn how to surf. And very sweetly, he brought an extra board and he actually gave it to me and he took me to the beach and took me to the Pacific Ocean and he showed me the elementary ropes. Truth be told, I I have never been a very good surfer, but nonetheless, it didn't stop his love and his grace to me and just taking me under his wing on Saturday mornings. And he really brought me along. And this is a remarkable thing because for someone who grew up in Canada and the part of Canada that I grew up in, if you know, if you've ever been to Toronto, Toronto is flatter than flat. It has a lake and that's about it. And uh, Matt's laughing as I disrespect our, our, our home turf, but it is, it is as flat as a surfboard. Um, and yet I wasn't ignorant of surfing. I just never thought I'd do it. I had grown up. In Canada, yes, even in Canada we do have TVs and sometimes we see American sports and so I would watch and see surfing competitions on TV. And even when I first moved to California, I had the opportunity to go to a Pacific Open in Huntington Beach where the professional surfers surfed and spend the day there. But I really quickly discovered it's very different to watch surfing on TV or to sit there and watch professionals do it, it's very different to sit and to stand on top of a rising wave in the Pacific Ocean and to feel the ocean's power under your feet and to fall into that wave even as it moves and bottoms out and to allow that wave to carry you away. And it was an experience, brothers and sisters, especially those times, many times I sat on the top of that wave and tumbled 
okay, and you sort of look down as it bottoms out, and what looks like a three-foot wave bottoms out and becomes much bigger. It was both terrifying and exhilarating and humbling all at the same time. And as we come to the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans, the Apostle Paul, I believe, shows us that grace is not unlike that experience. God's gospel is not unlike that experience. It's one thing to hear and talk about it on a Sunday. Something to go to a shepherd's conference and see it and see the great men of faith stand up and proclaim it. It's something to see in other people's lives. But brothers and sisters, it's a very different experience like the Apostle Paul to sit and stand on top of it. To fall into it. To tumble and crash and to allow it to carry you away. And to get a sense and an appreciation for how small we are And how infinitely great, how infinitely good, how infinitely wonderful the gospel and the grace of God is. I have a sense, to some degree in America, because we're so passive and it's become a viewer experience, that our appreciation and notion of God's grace is this static definition that we read in a textbook. And yet that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking to us about as he writes this epistle to the beloved saints in Rome. As he talks about the gospel and you look at how he describes it and you listen to what he has to say, he's talking about something that is dynamic and powerful and infinitely transforming. It's massive. And of course, clearly that was his life. As the Apostle Paul writes about this, he makes it clear that God didn't send His beloved Son into this fallen and broken world to die on a cross for your sins and mine just so that we would have something to talk about on Sundays or at the end of our basketball games or picnics. Christ died to give us the gospel and the grace that comes with it and the power of God to live by 24-7. Every minute, every moment, in every aspect of our lives. That grace would rule and be what's over us and under us in the very air that we breathe in our marriages, our work. our relationships, every aspect of our lives, brothers and sisters, and not simply what we talk about at Bible studies. And that, brothers and sisters, is just an infinitely wonderful and glorious thing. Christ died, brothers and sisters, so that we could begin to appreciate firsthand how great the glory of God is in us. Paul writes about in the beginning of Romans 5, the grace in which we stand. So that we could appreciate firsthand the glory of God in us, the infinite wonder and grace of God's truth and His grace in 
us a truth and grace that is infinitely greater than us and that is infinitely greater than our sin and that, quite frankly, is infinitely greater than anything this world has to offer. That, brothers and sisters, was the testimony of the Apostle Paul's life. And, as he wrote to the Romans, quite frankly, as you read the closing chapter of Romans and all the people he wrote to, that was the testimony of their lives as well. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the gospel is all about. God, brothers and sisters, gave us the gospel at great expense to himself for us to live. And that, brothers and sisters, is what Romans 5 is all about. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to stretch you a little bit this morning in the way I love, which isn't going to read the whole chapter for us. But our focus is going to be on Romans 12 through 20, excuse me, Romans 5 verses 12 through 21. And our focus is going to be on, last week it was on sin, this week it's going to be on grace. But let's read the whole chapter together. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which We stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. As we think about the Apostle Paul and we consider the man through whom the Holy Spirit gave us these words, very clearly, and by all accounts, both those who are Bible scholars but those who don't believe in the Lord at all, As we consider the Apostle Paul's life, not just his writing, his life, very clearly he didn't just write and talk about the gospel. The Apostle Paul lived and breathed the gospel in every aspect of his life. He was a man as we consider him and we consider the testimony about him. He was clearly someone who lived Galatians 2.20. He was a man who clearly had been crucified with Christ. He was clearly a man who no longer lived for himself. But it was Christ living in and through the Apostle Paul. In the life he lived in the flesh, he clearly lived by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave his life for him. And we see that in every aspect of his life, not just his preaching and teaching, but even in his tent making or his laboring so as not to be a burden for those churches he ministered to. And here in Romans five twelve through 21 the Apostle Paul is helping the Romans and us to understand, to appreciate the greatness of this grace that has transformed his life. shows us what's so special and what's so amazing about that grace. And he begins by making a comparison between Adam and Christ. I'm going to ask the AV team if you could help me with my first slide. There we go. Thank you so much. Okay. He does this comparison between Adam and Christ and the family of Adam and the family of Jesus and the life of Adam and the life of Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. But that's where he starts. He makes this comparison between the two of them. And if you heard the sermon that I recommended you by Dr. MacArthur, Dr. MacArthur and many of the commentators will point out that this comparison that the Apostle Paul is making is a comparison or an analogy of contrasts. 
The point that he's making is that Adam and the family that comes from Adam and all those who belong to Adam and the life of Adam that's given to all of us is in no way like the person, the life, the ministry, and the family of Christ. It's alike only in one way. In that Adam's action and choice affected universally everyone who has come from Adam. And similarly, Jesus' action and choice has affected all who have come from him. That Adam is the federal, the legal, the representative head of all who come from him before Christ, excuse me, before God. And similarly, Jesus is the legal and representative head of all those who come from Him or who are born from Him or who are descended from Him. And so in this world, there are two races and two families. And they are not black and white. They are sons and daughters of Adam or sons and daughters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the purpose that the Apostle Paul is giving this to us in the beginning and what he's setting up is he's going to show us how different the life in Christ is, how different gospel living is, how different and how infinitely greater and more wonderful the grace of God is than what rules This world, the careers of this world, the lives of this world, the marriages of this world, every aspect of this world, sin and death. And the point that he begins to highlight as we get into verse 15 is significantly what sets these two families apart. is the saving grace of God in Christ. The saving grace of God in Christ. Let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. Do we see that distinction? When we meet a believer or we go to church, do we see a significant distinction or separation or difference in what we experience or see or come up next to and what we see every day in the world? Well, this brings us to our first point. AV team, could you help me with that? Thank you so much. The grace of the gospel is God's saving grace in Christ alone. The grace of the gospel is God's saving grace in Christ alone. And the Apostle Paul is pointing out, this is what separates the family of Christ from the family of Adam. What separates believers and children of God from those who are unbelievers and just regular people in the world. It's the saving grace of the gospel. It's God's saving grace in Christ. Now, when we talk about grace, what comes to mind? And I want to address this a little bit because there's a lot of different views of what grace is. And certainly in the beginning we talk about, we have to talk about God's common grace. That there are aspects of God's grace. And God's common grace is the grace that He gives to everyone. The sun and the sky, the rain that falls on both the evil and the good. All the benefits and blessings and the things that we experience, that unbelievers and believers experience. 
But where Paul is going is he's saying there's an aspect of God's grace that is only experienced in and through the life of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and by being connected with Him. And that is the only aspect of grace that will save you from your sin. It's the grace of the gospel. Now, when we think or we talk about grace, for many people, the idea of grace, when we say that, what comes to mind? In our family, when we talk about it, Julie reminds me, well, it's, grace is the name of nice first-generation Korean gals. It's that time and era, right? Where grace was like the name Jennifer. That's what's out there. And that's what we think of at, at its best, right? At its worst... We can often think of of grace as as beige doormats. Vehicles that serve everyone and offend no one. Loving, kind, tolerant, easygoing. And when I push people a little bit for a definition of grace, typically what you hear is unmerited favor. That's sort of the standard definition that lets lets us get out of Sunday school class. God's unmerited favor. Sometimes there's the better one, I think, to some degree, that Jerry Bridges says, which my wife reminded me of last night, from the mnemonic grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. But as we think about grace in, in those terms, if sin gets defined as missing the mark, what we tend to think of, sin is that definition, missing the mark, Grace frequently is about getting a pass for our mistakes, God overlooking our sins, getting by where we're not held accountable for our sins. And frequently we tend to think of grace as tolerance. It's the aloha spirit of the gospel. It's what allows us to overlook or not deal with our sin or other people's sin. It's the absence of accountability. And deep down inside, we tend to think of it that way because typically when someone does confront us on our sin or someone does hold us accountable about our sin, big or small, we tend to think of those people as being intolerant, not gracious, unkind, unloving. And we do that in part because those are the seminars we receive at work and that's what we hear in the news and that's how Washington functions and that's how our churches function too. That if we say anything about sin, we're being ungracious. And yet what's remarkable is we consider this passage written by, quite frankly, I believe, one of the most gracious human beings in the history of the world apart from Jesus, the Apostle Paul. He spends a lot of time, as we mentioned last week, confronting and talking about not just some of our sin, but all of our sin. And he explains to us it's not a little problem, it's an all-consuming problem. He doesn't come and say it's just 10% of your life. He's saying, look, this is the entirety of your life without Christ. And it's not just a mistake, it's a power and principality that rules your life and is expressed in every aspect of your life, from your facial expressions, your words, to the little things that you do. But unlike the Pharisees, and unlike many professing Christians and many pastors, the Apostle Paul is talking about our sin so 
that He can show us how wonderful, how powerful, how amazing, and how necessary the grace of the gospel is. And this is because the Apostle Paul here is not talking about human tolerance. He's talking about an attribute of God. He's talking about an attribute of God's holiness. Now, we tend to think of God's holiness as His moral perfection, His sinlessness. When we say, okay, what does it mean to be holy? Most of us think it's... And where I'm going with this, brothers and sisters, is so many of the aspects of the gospel, we have these paper-thin definitions, and we impose the context of our world. And so we distort them, even if we have the definition right. We tend to think of holiness as holier than thou, those monks up in the hill. We tend to think of it as a life that is completely separated from sin, sinlessness, moral perfection. But as you read through the scriptures, you see that that is, brothers and sisters, just one aspect of God's holiness. It's true, God is without sin. It's true, God is morally perfect. But... If we take that in isolation, we distort the testimony of the gospel and who God is. God is not some monk sitting on the top of a mountain reading books all day, removed from the world. God is very present in your life and mine and in this world. And the holiness of God refers to the infinite goodness and greatness of God. Infinite beyond measure and compare. And one aspect of God's holiness that sets him apart, because God's holiness is what sets him apart from his creation and his creatures. One aspect that sets him apart is his infinite, beyond measure and compare, his infinite grace. How much grace do you have, brothers and sisters? Kevin Al was sharing with me the joys of ministering to sick children. How much grace, brothers and sisters, do you have? Well, we each have our limit, right? And typically that grace comes out when our kids make us feel happy about ourselves and the situation. It's a very different situation when everybody seems very, very unhappy. And yet the grace that the Apostle Paul is writing about, if you recall what we read in Romans 5 in those first sections, is a grace that rejoices in suffering. One of the attributes of God's holiness, brothers and sisters, His infinite goodness and greatness and His infinite love is His infinite, beyond measure or compare, grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus 33.19. Exodus 33.19. And we'll see that what Paul is describing in the gospel that he's describing, the grace he's talking about, is the grace that is anchored in the person and the work and the character of God. We're never going to, brothers and sisters, understand what grace is if we look at the government, if we look at our friends, or we look at one another, or you look at your pastor. Exodus 33.19. Exodus 33.19, you'll recall, is after the sin of the golden calf and the idolatry of the golden calf. And God brings judgment on the children of Israel who have just in His absence broken the covenant and every law of the covenant. And they have worshipped this image of a golden calf. 
okay, which they've erected in his place, and he comes and he brings judgment. And Moses intercedes on their behalf. And Moses comes and speaks to God. And he makes it clear to God, God, I can't go on if you don't go with me. Can't do it. It's not going to happen. And he makes a request of God. He asks God for something he does not deserve or is not warranted. He asks to see God's glory. And what's God's response? Exodus thirty-three nineteen. Moses wants to see the infinite greatness of God. He wants the presence of God. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. The Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Mercy. And in this passage, the Lord God shows Moses that his graciousness is directly connected to his goodness and his mercy. They're connected. He also shows that his graciousness is his right and his prerogative. It's not something we deserve. John Calvin defines grace as the free goodness, the free goodness, and the gratuitous love of God. The free goodness and the gratuitous love of God. And by gratuitous, he means what we do not warrant, what we do not earn, what we do not deserve, what God should not give to anyone, but he does. His goodness and his love. And it is the holy and generous love of God that's on display that chooses, not obligated, chooses to give what we do not deserve and what we cannot earn. And what is that? What does God give Moses here in this passage? He gives himself. That's what his name means. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord way, Yahweh, the covenant name of intimate relationship between the creator of the universe and his creatures. Moses, I'm going to draw near to you. I'm going to give you myself. And I'm going to give to you myself and giving you myself, I'm going to give you all my goodness. I'm going to allow you to draw near to it at least for a moment. What you do not deserve and which you could never accomplish on your own. No climbing a mountain, no radical amputation. And how does God say He's going to do this for Moses? How is He going to show His grace to Moses, His infinite goodness and His gratuitous love? How is He going to show it to Moses? How is He going to give it to Moses? Moses, let's make a deal. If you come to church every week, I'll show it to you. Moses, if you read your Bible every day, I'm going to do it for you. Moses, if you serve in the children's ministry, I'm going to do it for you. If you look very carefully, you see that God gives Moses himself, his grace, his infinite goodness. He does it through his word. I will proclaim before you my name and his work. It's all about what God does. 
Remember the gospel. The gospel is not me accepting Jesus into my heart. It's what God has done to save sinners. It's through His Word and His work that God shows His grace to Moses. Think about that time that you spend in the morning reading your Bibles. Do we do so out of duty or obligation or out of appreciation that God is showing us all His goodness and Himself in and through the gift of His Word? We'll have a look at verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And here we see that God's infinite goodness, His grace to Moses, does not overlook Moses' sin and his unholiness. He doesn't give Moses a pass. He doesn't say, we'll just pretend it doesn't exist, Moses, and we won't talk about it because it's awkward for you and it's awkward for me. And brothers and sisters, many times we're uncomfortable with sin because we do not know what to do with it in our marriages, our family, our relationships, our church. So we just kind of hope it goes away. But that's not the grace of God. And that's not the beauty of the grace of God and why God's grace is so gracious. Because God does know what to do with our sin. And God's grace is greater than our sin. Instead of overlooking or tolerating our sinfulness. And I heard a pastor this week mention, we begin to look like what we tolerate. In our marriages, our home, our work, we begin to look what we ta- look like what we tolerate. But God's grace does not overlook or tolerate our sinfulness. Instead, what God does is His grace makes our sin His concern. His grace makes our sin His concern. That's graciousness, brothers and sisters. Graciousness is when we make other people's problems our own. Verse 21, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you. Think Genesis 3, where the Lord covers the first man and woman. And in exchange for their fig leaves, He gives them the covering of animal skins. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And here in love, God does for Moses what Moses could never do for himself. He covers Moses so that Moses can draw near to the love and infinite goodness of God. So that Moses can capture a glimpse of God's glory. Brothers and sisters, that's what God's grace does in a person's life. That's why it's so amazing. That's why when you meet a person like the Apostle Paul or anybody else who you meet who's experienced God's grace, they are different. Because what God's grace does is it draws us near and covers our sin and brings us to a place where we can begin to see the infinite goodness and kindness and love and righteousness of a God who does not compromise, but instead He delivers. And what is the result? 
Well, the result ultimately is peace that comes from being right with God. It's joy and celebrating with your whole heart that what you need, God has given you infinitely more. And it's a life that comes from God alone. And in fact, the testimony of Scripture from Genesis onwards is the same. Because we're seeing the same grace similar to what God showed in Genesis 1 and 2 where He gave His goodness and His life to the first man and woman. Obviously, but sin ruined that and separated them from the glory of God. But straight through, the testimony of God's Word is that we cannot live without God's grace. Whether it be His common grace, the sun, the rain, and what we're living through right now with drought, but more importantly, His saving grace that covers our sin and draws us near. We were created, brothers and sisters, to be in fellowship with God. And when God is not a part of our lives, and He's not ruling our lives, and He's not the center and sustaining part of our lives, brothers and sisters, we live by trying to fill our lives with all these God substitutes. My car, my career, my friends, my spouse, my family. And guess what? They all disappoint. And then, pathetically, what happens when they disappoint is we get angry at those things and we discard them and we ditch them. Get the new car, get the new job, get the new wife, get the new kids. And the real problem, brothers and sisters, is we don't have God and we don't have the grace that we were created to live by and live with. And here in Exodus 33, God graciously gives Moses, a taste of that. But Moses draws near and it's temporary. It's not permanent and eternal. And throughout the Old Testament, the children of Israel, though God dwells within them in the city of Zion and in the temple, they are able to draw near. But there is still a veil and there is still a boundary and there is still a separation and there's still a need for sacrifice. And as we come to the New Testament, the word in Greek for grace is charis. You'll recall that. Many people name their children that. It's a beautiful name. But what's interesting is we look at that word, charis. It's coming from the Greek word that's also tied to joy. The idea of receiving grace fills the entirety of your life with a joy that is worth celebrating, like the joy of a wedding feast. And the proof of that grace... What's the proof of that grace? What's the proof of God's infinite love and goodness? Is the Greek word charisma. Charisma. Charisma is the free gift of grace. It's the proof that grace has been given. How do I know my wife loves me? Well, there are multiple proofs in our lives. Right? Not infrequently when I'm away at Shepherd's Conference or I'm traveling... I'll phone home and I'll ask Julie, I said, is there something I can pick up for the kids to let them know I love them? And what Julie will tell me typically on the phone is, you know, the kids really don't need anything. When you come home, just spend time with them. The love that they need, the greatest gift, the greatest proof of my love for them is for their father to sit down and play a board game or go and play football or just spend time with them. And brothers and sisters, that's what the grace of the gospel is all about. It's God's delight and desire and finding a way, even at the death of His own Son, to be with you. 
And what is the greatest charisma? The greatest proof of God's grace and the greatest proof of His unmerited favor? Is it speaking in tongues? Oh, I speak in tongues, I can do miracles. Very clearly, I'm juiced in with the Lord. I went to seminary. I'm juiced in with the Lord. What, brothers and sisters, is the greatest proof and gift of God's love? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave what? A great ministry? He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, what is the greatest proof of God's love in your life? What is the charisma of your life? It's very interesting as we look at churches and ministries and leaders, especially at this time when many quote-unquote great leaders in the faith seem to have put out stumbling blocks. And we struggle with that. I do. And yet we forget, brothers and sisters, the greatest charisma is not passion in the pulpit per se. It's not gifted teaching per se. It's not great programs per se. It's not healing or miracles per se. The greatest charisma is the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, His Spirit and His Word in our lives. And brothers and sisters, that's the greatest gift we can give to anyone. And as we come to Romans 5, 12-14, what the Apostle Paul reminds us is that as children of Adam, all we ourselves have to give one another is sin and death. It's what we try and remind our premaritals, all those folks who are getting ready to get married. Look, God has given you an amazing love. He's brought you together. He's done a mighty work in your life. But guess what, singles? God's done the same for you too. You're not second-class citizens. The fullness of God's grace He's given through His gospel. It's just that the aspect that He's given to you looks different from those who are married. But what those married folks certainly find out, especially during that first year of marriage, is that we bring a lot of stuff into that marriage, despite all our best intentions, despite how great the wedding is, despite how great the wedding gifts are, despite how great we look in the wedding gown and the suit. What we bring and what we give to others, brothers and sisters, is sin and death. And if there's any good thing that we give to one another, those things are God's common grace that He has given. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4-7, What have you received that was not given to you? And this is as they fight over spiritual gifts and who's the most important. And as we come to verse 15 through 21, the Apostle Paul shows us God has freely given the fullness of His grace. All of it, brothers and sisters. And that's Ephesians 1 and 2. Everything that He has to give. All of Himself. He has given all of it in Christ Jesus. And whether you're a babe in Christ, or you're John MacArthur... The fullness of God's grace completely has been given to you in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. But it's been given in Christ alone. 
And it is in Christ alone, brothers and sisters, that we can be saved. Why? Because it is in Christ alone that God gives a grace that is greater than our sin and death. And this brings us to our second point. God's grace in Christ, His gospel grace, is infinitely greater than sin and death in every possible way. God's grace in Christ, His gospel grace, is infinitely greater than sin and death. In verse 15, after the Apostle Paul explains that through one man, sin and death spread to all men, he says, but the charisma, the free gift, is not like the trespass. And the emphasis here is on the difference. Not like, different in every way continues to surprise me how we try to take the things from the world and clean them up and bring them into the church and believe that we're doing people a good good thing, a favor. What the Apostle Paul begins to show the Romans and us here is that the grace of the gospel, God's grace in Christ, is infinitely different and greater than the sin and death we've received through Adam. The sin and death that rules this world. Now, I want to stop here for a second. When we tend to think of grace and sin, and we make those comparisons between good and evil, the way we tend to think, if we're honest, brothers and sisters, because this is the way the world thinks, many times, not always, but especially when folks come in for counseling and they're struggling, and they're struggling with their sin, so often we tend to think of A battle in our hearts between good and evil, where good is equal to evil. Could I have my next slide, please? We're more the product of Star Wars than we care to admit. We tend to think dualistically, okay? And it shows in the way we compartmentalize our lives. We've got this for work, this for marriage, this for church, and it's all divvied up. And much of that comes from this dualistic thinking. It's very sort of yin and yang, right? We think of Star Wars. We think of the Force, equal and opposite. There's the good part of the Force and the bad part of the Force. And they're both fighting for control of the good guys. Okay, that will, brothers and sisters, that's the story we live. We think we're inherently good and that there's a devil on my one shoulder and an angel on my other. They're both about the same size and they have a punching match. And on my good days, the angel wins. And on my bad days, the devil wins. And that's kind of the story of my life. And that's the ongoing struggle of my sin. And that's why it keeps on going like this. But brothers and sisters, that is completely contrary to the gospel. It's not good news, brothers and sisters, if God's grace is equal to the evil of this world. It's not good news if there's a battle between equally good and bad forces in my life. That dualism which came and was tied to Gnosticism in the early church was condemned as a heresy, contrary to the gospel. And what Paul, and the point he's making here is, no, brothers and sisters, the reason the gospel is such good news is the grace that God gives you in Christ is infinitely greater than the sin and evil and the trespass and the consequences of the entirety of this world. And in verse 15 through 21, the Apostle Paul shows us that in every possible way, 
God's grace in Christ is different and greater. Could I have my next slide, please? In verse 15, the Apostle Paul, he reminds us what Adam has given every man. What is it? Is his trespass. That's his work. His works. What he achieved, what he accomplished in and of himself on his own. His work of sin, his work of unbelief, his work of disobedience to God's word. Not infrequently, when couples come to us and they're discouraged, they both have been trying as hard as they can to live as best they can. And they continue to step on one another's toes. And they're, why? I'm killing myself. I'm killing myself to serve my wife. I'm killing myself to serve my husband. I'm killing myself to put a roof over the heads and and to take care of everything. But brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, our works fall short of the glory of God. They do not fix the underlying problem, which is our sin. They cannot cover over. It is not greater. The Apostle Paul, in the second part of verse 15, he shows that God gives in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, this charisma, this free gift that is quantitatively and by nature radically different from the works and the sin of this world and from everything that we give and receive in Adam. Everything we have, brothers and sisters, everything we do is tainted by our sin. And sin by nature, what does sin do? Sin takes and uses and destroys everything that is good and in the end it leaves nothing but trash and debts and brokenness. That is the story of sin. Whether you've got a gambling problem, a drug addiction, or a root of bitterness in your heart. It's the story of Vegas, brothers and sisters. There's one winner who appears to win big, but you don't find out what the rest of his life is like when he leaves the casino. It's the life of celebrity, fame and fortune, and movie companies and red carpets. And just talk to the children in those families. And the rehab units that follow. Sin offers to give you everything, and instead it takes everything, and in the end it leaves you with nothing. And in verse 15, he points out, one trespass leaves many dead. That's the nature of sin, brothers and sisters. It's one sin. It's one unkind word. Those of you who are married, you know the power of one unkind word and how it can turn. An entire marriage, an entire family, an entire week, upside down and shut it down. It is a big deal, brothers and sisters. And yet, brothers and sisters, as big a deal as that is, even bigger, is God's grace. Because the Apostle Paul in this verse describes God's grace and His free gift in Christ by the words, much more and abounded for many. And he shows us by nature God's grace In Christ, it doesn't just give, brothers and sisters. It takes everything in our lives that is worthless and evil. It takes everything in our lives that is worthless and evil. And it gives and fills our lives to overflowing with so much more of everything that is good and holy and of God overwhelmingly God's grace is greater than sin and its effects. It covers and it reverses. And the charisma and proof of this grace, the life of Christ, 
in contrast to the life of Adam. We see it, brothers and sisters, in the life of Jesus, do we not? Why did tax collectors and prostitutes gravitate towards Jesus? It's not because he overlooked their sin. He certainly called out the Pharisees and named their sins publicly in front of people. It's because the grace that they experienced in Christ was greater than their sin. It's because here was a man who was able to take their sin and draw them near to the presence and goodness of God and give them the goodness and love of God infinitely. And if you've got big sins, brothers and sisters, there's no place you'd rather be. Jesus made other people's sins His concern. He took their sins on His shoulders and He provided a way for them to be near to God. And He did so ultimately how? By giving His life on the cross. By taking their place on the cross and paying the debt for their sin. And similarly, what did the Apostle Paul do? The life he gave, he gave to churches. When you read how the churches treated the Apostle Paul, it was terrible. They called him short, probably. That's the implication. Not particularly good looking. Not a good preacher. They slammed him. Those he loved the most. And yet, what did he do? He gave and he gave and he gave. And you read those first chapters in Corinthians and see the love that he has for a church that just trashed him and broke his heart. Wow. And in verse 16, the Apostle Paul shows us how God's grace and His free gift in Christ is not just infinitely greater in quality and quantity. Not how it's the, just how it's the opposite and reverses everything that our sin does. He shows us it's greater in its power and effect what it accomplishes. So often when you gather around in church ministry and you even hear pastors talk, they talk about efficiency. Well, what is this going to accomplish? What is this going to do? Why are we having a Bible study? What is this really going to accomplish? Aren't we going to build hospitals and do great things? Well, Paul shows us here what it accomplishes in verse 16. He says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought what? Condemnation, Genesis 3. It brought judgment, it brought guilt, it brought curse. It cut us off from the life and love of God. That's what sin accomplishes in your life and mine. Big sins or small. But then he goes on and says, But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. What is justification, brothers and sisters? It's to be legally declared righteous and right with God. To be legally declared righteous and right with God. And what is required according to God's word to be justified, to be declared righteous or right with God? It's a life, brothers and sisters, without sin or guilt. It's a life of perfect obedience to God's word as proof of a perfect love for God and a perfect faith in God. How many of you have a righteous life? You might be better than the next person, but how many of you are right with God in and of yourselves? How many of you have perfectly proven to God through your life that you have perfect love for Him 
and you trust Him perfectly. Never in a million years, brothers and sisters. Never in a million years. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is what God's grace has given to every true child of God and every sinner who by faith has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. How? Why? Because our Lord and Savior lived a perfect life. A life of perfect love and faith in God the Father and the Spirit. And the proof of that life was perfect obedience, even death on a cross that He did not deserve, but did so for a people who hated Him and had sinned against Him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the grace of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is God's gift of that perfect life in exchange for the worthless and filthy lives that we surrender to Him. And this, brothers and sisters, brings us to our final point for this morning. Could I have that? Thank you. God's grace, His free gift, leads to a completely new life in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the lie we often live, and I live it too, is that somehow the gospel and being a Christian gives you a better version of this life. A little less sin, a little more sleep at night, a little fewer conflicts in the home, a little more obedience. It's, you know, like what we have right now is one iOS system and the gospel gives us the next one. Sadly, we see many pastors who sell that and project that too. First, it's about the Word. Then it's about prayer. Then it's about discipleship. Then it's about outreach. And each time we're getting one iOS system better and closer to the Lord. That's Gnosticism, brothers and sisters. That's not the Gospel. As you come to verse 17 through 21, God's gift and His grace in Christ is a completely free and a completely new and a completely different life that is given to you the moment you are reborn in Christ. It's like a heart transplant, except the heart you're getting is not someone else's old heart. It's a completely new heart, and that old heart that no longer works is removed. It's completely different. And it should look completely different, brothers and sisters. Have a look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And we go, brothers and sisters, with this grace from being slaves of sin to slaves of Christ. But when we become slaves of Christ, he talks here that we will reign not in death, but in life. Ring that bell. Genesis 1 and 2. God created the first man and woman to reign. You'll reign over all of these things. Sin broke that and made us its slaves. 
But in Christ and through His grace and through His life, He brings us back to Him where we reign in Christ. Drop down to verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a complete reversal, brothers and sisters, of everything that sin and death has done in this world. And it begins, it begins, it's not going to be completed until we see Jesus face to face, but it begins the moment of the new birth. When you look at this in the language Paul uses, very simply, this new life in Christ is a life where grace reigns. Every aspect of your life is about the economy of grace. It's not an exchange in your marriage. I do this for you, you do this for me. It's not an exchange in ministry. Well, Pastor Mark, I'll do this Bible study for you if you do this Bible study for me. Grace reigns. God's unmerited favor, generosity, taking other people's sin and problems on yourself so in exchange you can give them the goodness of Christ. That's Christ on the cross, brothers and sisters. And when you meet gracious people, you see that's what sets them apart. There's this generosity where nothing is asked for in return. And in fact, they take your problems onto themselves. When I phone Ricardo, and I'm there to try and encourage him, and he asks how he can pray for me, and he shepherds my soul, and he gives me scripture, and he probes a little bit and sees the areas that I'm struggling with, and he takes those things on himself, and he's sitting there working in a hundred degree heat in a container trying to get things moved out by a deadline. He is taking my problems, and he is giving me nothing but Christ in return. That, brothers and sisters, is who Jesus is. It's the Spirit of Christ. It's a life, brothers and sisters, that is ruled by Christ and His grace. And if you notice very carefully, grace, he says, reigns through what? Verse 21. What does grace reign through? Does it reign through my sin? Does it reign through my giving? Does it reign through my love? It reigns through righteousness. God's grace does not give a pass to our sin, brothers and sisters. And the evidence that grace is ruling in our lives is a growing righteousness and a rightness with God. And Paul begins Romans and he ends talking about the obedience of faith. That is the proof that grace is reigning in my life. Is that there is an increase day by day of an obedience by faith. Where out of love for Christ and the power of His grace in me. And grace, brothers and sisters, it destroys sin. Christ comes in with His grace and He takes our sin. He does not leave it there, brothers and sisters. It's a nuclear bomb. What's the remedy for stopping our sin? It's not trying harder, brothers and sisters. If it was trying harder, we'd already be there. We would already be there. We're here because we've been trying harder. It's the overwhelming presence of Christ and God in our lives that comes in and leaves no room for sin and it reigns through righteousness and the evidence in our lives is an obedience of faith. You show me someone where grace is abounding, I will show you someone where obedience increasingly looks like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Some of you know I 
was at a memorial yesterday. That same 30 years ago, 20 years ago, young man who taught me how to surf, when I first moved to NorCal, I emailed him because he had moved up here with his wife. We went back and forth on email and tried to set up some meetings that never came about. And then I looked on the news one day on my phone and it caught my eye because there was an Asian school trustee who was crushed and killed while she was giving free school lunches and volunteering at a school. She was putting free food and lunches into the back of one car and the car that was parked behind her went forward and crushed her. And whatever that death was, it wasn't easy or it wasn't good. It was several hours. And then I started to wonder because of the location. And then I did some investigating and realized that this was the man who had taught me how to surf. It was his wife. And his wife's Julie's age. I thought, oh my goodness, how would I respond if that happened to me? Two kids. And honestly, brothers and sisters, when that happened, I struggled with the Lord over that. It's hard. And I sent an email to him and I said, Brother, just know I'm praying for you. I'm grieving with you. And if ever you want to reach out, whenever, would love to catch up with you. And uh, last week he, he called out of the blue. We talked on the phone. And then uh, graciously he invited me out to come out to the memorial. And honestly, brothers and sisters, yes. as I drove, I had a hard time. How do I reconcile God's free love and His graciousness with what happened? How do you reconcile that? I struggled with it. Struggled with it for this man. How does this man, you know, he shared with me and he wept on the phone. He shared how some nights he had to share with his kids, I'm struggling with God. How do you deal with that? How do you say God is good? And then we sat through the memorial and it was so good that I went. Because her father got up and shared how he had come to salvation late in life. And he talked about the death of his daughter and he talked about how he was angry about it. He did not overlook the sin. Whatever that had taken her away. That's not casting blame. But then he proceeded to say, I was angry for a day, and then the next day, I forgave the people who drove that car into my daughter. Brothers and sisters, where does that come from? And then proceeding after that, everyone proceeded to share about this young lady. And the recurrent theme, very simply, was that she had a remarkable life, which gave greatly to everyone. But the connection that everybody made 
was that this came, by all accounts, from a faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And there were just many lives that were touched by it. She was a giver. And clearly what ruled her life was grace. Her life was different. And in the end, the end of her life looked more like her Savior than it did the world. She lost her life tragically, giving to others. And as people gave the testimony about her lives, what they showed was, even as she gave in the school, even as she volunteered, even as she sat with mothers who were struggling, though in our minds they seemed to be disconnected, it was very much connected to a life that had been saved and had come to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in college at UCLA, and over the years was continuously transformed. Was it perfect? No. Was her theology perfect? Who knows? But at the end end of the day, the testimony was, and the end of her life, it looked more like Jesus than the world did. And brothers and sisters, it gave me peace and encouragement, I have to say, more so than all the statements of, she's in a better place. That's what we do to comfort people. They're in a better place. No, brothers and sisters... Eternal life for her began the moment she was saved. And grace ruled her life and reigned. And she belonged to the Lord. And that life that was remarkably different and joyful, that we lament that has been taken from us, is now with the Lord. It continues. It is eternal. And that eternal life started a long time ago. And God was gracious to give us a taste and bless us with it. But at the end of the day, it's His. And what He did in the end, as horrific as that is, and we still need to pray for that family, was He infinitely shared with us His goodness and grace in Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. What rules your life? Has eternal life started now? Does God's grace rule and reign? In the small and little things you do, whether it's volunteering or sharing with someone else, have you made your life available to God? Have you indeed given your life, which is worthless and filled with trash, So at the foot of the cross, God can give you an eternal life of infinite worth, the worth of His Son. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, the grace that You have given us is infinitely greater than the sin and death of this world. May we know it May we live it. But Lord, as a church, would we give ourselves to You so that You in turn might fill our lives to abounding with a grace that is greater than our sin. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for showing us that 
rightly understanding the grace of God 